0: You are listening to a sermon from St. Peter's Free Church in Dundee The Historic Church of Robert Murray McShane For more sermon content, please visit our website at stpeters-dundee.org.uk 128 this morning If you're a visitor to our congregation, then apart from saying, welcome to you. Perhaps a word of explanation. This psalm is not randomly selected from the 150. Uh, we have been studying uh, the so-called psalms of ascent from 120 through 134 in our evening services. David has been preaching through Second Corinthians, uh, but since I'm a man under authority, and he said, uh, change the evening series into the morning series. These last two Lord's Day mornings, we've been thinking about these Psalms of ascent, and we come to number 128. I think it's in the Pew Bible on page 624. Just a word of uh, introduction to these Psalms. There are 15 of them, and we've noticed that they all have more or less the same title, Songs of ascents. because although written by different people and at different times, they've been brought together by the editor who brought the Psalter together, and he did it not in a haphazard way. For example, he put it into five books. Uh, that's rather obvious, Uh, And these 15 Psalms brought together to help pilgrims on special weeks in their lives, special weeks in the year. Uh, They are going to a great conference or a great convention. And this is the hymn book that helps them uh, taste fully the experiences With God that He means them to have. And we've noticed all kinds of uh, clever little designs built in. For example, the middle Psalm that we looked at last week, 127, the number 8 in the 15, is the only Psalm that is attributed to Solomon. And Solomon is the king who builds the temple. And the temple is the place where God has said His heart will be open towards His people and His presence known, and it is the epicenter of the experience of the pilgrimage. On both sides of that psalm, there are two David psalms, almost like flying buttresses. David had planned but not built the temple. On each side of that psalm, uh, there are twelve references to the covenant name Yahweh on each side, and it seems the Psalms go in little groups of three, uh, either like a spiral staircase going round and round the experience of being in the presence of God, or perhaps like a corkscrew going round and round uh, so that the Psalmist experience of the Lord and His ways is ever more deep. And as God goes down, there, there are emotions and thoughts and aspirations and reflections and confessions that, that come up. So, that uh, in these 15 Psalms, we are, in a sense, we are being taken as readers, not on a geographical pilgrimage, but on a spiritual pilgrimage pilgrimage. And as God's Word and the sense of His presence, as it were, goes down into our lives, we discover that there are all kinds of hidden layers of perhaps resistance to Him or straying from Him that come up, and the psalmist is experiencing these things. And in this psalm, we are We're at the third of another cycle, and these third Psalms in the cycle all bring you to a a kind of sense of spiritual resolution before the screw goes down again, and you're brought to see trial or need and difficulty, and brought to a, a sense of resolution, and so it is in the Christian life, isn't it? It isn't a straight-line graph from conversion to glory. It is really more like a, a, a circular staircase and a, and, a, and a screw that goes down and down and twists and brings up more and more. So, 128, a song of ascent. "'Blessed are all who fear the Lord, who walk in His ways.'" you will eat the fruit of your labor. Blessings and prosperity will be yours. Your wife will be like a fruitful vine within your house. Your sons will be like olive shoots around your table. Thus is the man blessed who fears the Lord. May the Lord bless you from Zion all the days of your life. May you see the prosperity of Jerusalem, And may you live to see your children's children. Peace be upon Israel. A number of us in the room this morning are children of the 60s. Not that we were born in the 60s, but we became what we now are beginning in the 60s. And we lived through the so-called social and moral revolution of the 60s. If your mother was anything like my mother, a teenager in the 1960s, then you didn't listen to the Rolling Stones, and you certainly didn't go to their concerts, but you couldn't avoid them. And you go through the rest of your life with a a kind of subliminal sense that uh, the great song of the 60s, voted by Rolling Stone magazine, the second greatest pop song uh, ever written, was the Stone's uh, I Can't Get No, in parenthesis, satisfaction. And I guess that has lingered in my mind, not only because of the power of the rhythm of the beat. You may be surprised that I even know about that song, but also because it's often struck me in the years that have passed since that uh, it really was the anthem of a generation and has become the most extraordinary, almost prophetic comment on the fifty years since. And uh, it's in a strange way significant, isn't it? the experience is bad, and it's matched by grammar that's bad. You don't say, I can't get no satisfaction. That's bad grammar. But the truth is even worse, isn't it? And yet, as we we open our newspapers every single day in a way uh, that is almost like a caricature of the 60s, that is the message that we keep on getting. It's all about a world that cannot find satisfaction, people who cannot find satisfaction. Perhaps one of the greatest deceptions of our time is the attraction that there is now to very young teenagers, to lifestyles and people who anyone with any discernment immediately recognizes are not getting any satisfaction. And this psalm stands in very deliberate contrast to that reality. This is about satisfaction. And it's interesting that it should come just as we've passed the center point in these 15 psalms because the very first of these psalms deals with a man who is living in a very dysfunctional world in which people are scrambling for but never finding satisfaction, and he has this sense of a, a kind of disintegration of life around him, and he longs for shalom, for well-being. He longs to experience the ironic benediction of Numbers chapter 6, which flows through these fifteen sons, that he would taste blessings that he would know shalom, which in a sense simply means satisfaction and contentment. And this psalm, like a number of psalms that deal with this theme, fits into the category that we might call wisdom psalms. They're often referred to by scholars as wisdom psalms, just like the book of Proverbs and Ecclesiastes are wisdom books. Their statements are not generalities, they are not blank checks, but they are descriptions of what God ordinarily does in the lives of people who trust Him. They set before us a glorious vision of what God desires for our lives, and a beautiful description of the foci, the central aspects of uh, the life of a child of God, who can say in contrast uh, to the words of the stones, I know where I can experience real satisfaction. That's actually what the opening words are saying. It's interesting that I think the language of blessing has only been used once, I think, in the first series of Psalms. He's going to Jerusalem, he's looking for the moment when the priest will pronounce the benediction that says, The Lord bless you and keep you. Uh, and it's in this Psalm now, as he's, as it were, in the middle of the experience, that we find the language of blessing begins to ooze out of the experience he's describing. And there are two different words that are used. One of them really means something like satisfied, satisfied, happy, contented, fulfilled. And the other is a word that's characteristically used in the pages of the Old Testament Scriptures, by way of contrast with the word curse. Blessing from the Garden of Eden onwards is where the curses on life are removed and the divine purposes for life come into fulfillment. And that's the very thing that he's meditating on here. And you'll notice essentially that Psalm divides into three sections. The first, the introductory one, in which he reflects on the key to satisfaction and how we experience it. What is the key to the satisfied life, to the happy life, to the blessed life, to the contented life? Well, he gives a very illuminating answer, doesn't he? The way to satisfaction is to fear and to follow the Lord. That actually may be one of the reasons the world never discovers it, because if you engage in conversation with people, you may discover the most feared thing in most people's lives is the fear of the Lord. That is the fear that they most fear. And yet in Scripture. In the Old Testament scriptures, and it surfaces also in the New, in exhortations to fear the Lord. This is actually the fear that drives out all other fears. What is this fear of the Lord? I think perhaps the best way to put it is the fear of the Lord is the consciousness of the intensity and holiness of His love for me that produces in me a desire that I should always be conscious of His smile and that I should avoid anything that might cause Him to frown. That's what the fear of the Lord is. It's actually in Scripture very close indeed to the idea of loving the Lord. The person who loves the Lord is the person who longs for the Heavenly Father's smile to be upon his or her life. And so to live that we will never grieve the Holy Spirit, that we will never cause our beloved Heavenly Father to frown. And he's saying this is this is what I've discovered, and I've discovered it even more intensely. On this pilgrimage. I began in a, in a situation of great darkness, and now here God has been working in my life, and uh, I've, been, I've been brought back to normal. I've been brought back to the center. This is the absolute soul of the knowledge of the Lord, that I see Him in the holy purity of His love for me. He will do anything to have me. He will get rid of anything in my life that prevents Him from having me. And all of this because He loves me so much. After all, even the psalmists had a sense that something cataclysmic was going to happen in history that would demonstrate how much He loves me. As Paul says in Romans 5, and now he has demonstrated his love for me, proved it, in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for him. One of the 19th century poets put it like this, They love thee little, if at all, who do not fear thee much. If love is thine attraction, Lord, fear is thy very touch. And that's what he's saying. He has been brought into this, and of course, as he's thought of all the things back home that he has had reason to fear, he sees that the fear of the Lord drives out these fears. Remember that lovely illustration of that principle in the midwives among God's people, when Pharaoh said, we want to get rid of all the boys that are born. As soon as they're born, we get rid of them. And uh, the Hebrew midwives, when all these boys are being born, say, you know, our, our mothers give birth so quick we, we can't get there in time to kill these baby boys. But the reason for their audacity is given to us in Exodus one seventeen. It was because they feared the Lord. That doesn't mean that they lived in craven terror of the Lord. It means that God was so big to them, so gracious to them, so secure for them, that Pharaoh's command seemed very little. And fear of Pharaoh was driven out by fear of the Lord. What do you fear in your life, incidentally? What are you scared of? Of whom are you scared? What situations cause you to close your mouth? What's your problem? Your problem is that uh, you don't fear the Lord, actually. You don't sense how intense uh, His love and devotion to you is. Was grace John Newton? It was John Newton, lovely John Newton wiping the floor of his church in the movie, who taught us to sing, Twas grace that taught my heart to fear.'" Fear whom? Fear the Lord. And therefore, that grace removed my fears. So this is the, if there is a secret, uh, you know, you watch someone, maybe you've been watching the footy on television or the golf on television, uh, and you, you, you play football, you play golf, you want to get one of these fellows and say, what's your secret? And you see that in the Lord's people, don't you? You want to say, tell me what the secret is here. Remember what Scripture teaches us? The secret of the Lord is with those who fear Him. It is the way to satisfaction. So there is the key to satisfaction. Secondly, in verses 2 through 4, there is the context for satisfaction. And there are two ways of looking at this. You can look down at this and it's speaking about your wife and your sons and uh, your your daily labor and you might say well that's not very much. That's not very spectacular. But that's where you live, isn't it? You and I don't live in the spectacular. You and I spend almost 24 hours of every day with family or with work or, of course, in bed. And we learned earlier on that he gives his beloved sleep. So, this is where you live. Actually, it doesn't, it doesn't matter a hoot how spectacular your life is, this is actually what it boils down to and what the psalmist has begun to discover interesting that he discovers it afresh in the midst of the Lord's people in this grand celebration in his life. He sees actually that what is at the very center of the Lord's purposes for him is that he should demonstrate what it means in this beautiful sense to fear the Lord and be satisfied with the Lord in the most basic areas of his existence. And he puts it very touchingly, doesn't he, that we experience this in our calling. He says, you will eat the fruit of your labor. Blessings and prosperity will be yours. Now, of course, this is not to say that the believer will never lose his job what he's saying is this is God's ordinary way with us, that as we love Him and trust Him, we begin to discover a satisfaction in serving Him in whatever calling in life He has given to us. And uh, way back in our early studies in Genesis that I don't expect you to remember the details of, uh, you remember how we thought about Adam and his work, I mean, think what Adam was called to be. He was called to be a gardener and a horticulturalist. He was called to be a father and a husband. He was called to be a scientist, life sciences. He was to categorize and name all these animals. He was to be an explorer and stretch the garden. He was to be a lawyer because God gave him a law and said, now that law is the test of all the laws that are written in your heart. Now go and explore what these laws are. Every conceivable area of life into which the Lord calls His people, and in a day when there is such deep dissatisfaction with work, then what a testimony the servant of the Lord is in whatever sphere of life, to find a satisfaction. This is a a great secret of the Christian believer, isn't it? Why is it if you're employed, you work so well for your employer, and sir, he doesn't even see it because I'm not working for him ultimately. I'm working for the Lord you've got a miserable employer. Why do you work for him so well and faithfully? Unlike others who say he's a miserable employer, I'm going to do as little as possible for him, because you're not working for him. You're working before the face of your heavenly Father. And no matter what he thinks or says, there is this glorious inner sense of contentment. Lord, he doesn't even know our secret how children have such fun thinking that they've got secrets from their parents? Uh, It is fun to have secrets, especially from horrible people who don't know the secret of the contentment that they crave is found in perhaps their most menial employee who is doing everything he does for the Lord Jesus. Remember the story, I must have read it as a teenager, of the, the, the little boot polisher boy who did a spanking job on somebody's boots, and he said, yeah, this is a, you know, what drives you to do this day after day in people's boots? And he said, sir, I would want the Lord Jesus to be able to see His reflection in these boots if they were His, not for the money, not for the boss, but for the Lord And it brings enormous joy and contentment. And we enjoy the fruit of our labor because it's not in our wallet. But in serving the Lord. And then he says, inside your house. Now, most of us would probably not describe our wives this way. That is, each of us with his own wife. Your wife will be like a fruitful vine within your house. So, this is Old Testament poetry. But the language is very interesting. Uh, She will be like a fruitful vine within your house. That conveys the idea of not just she's in the house. Where's mother? She's in the house. That means she's really deep down in the house. She's in the recesses of the house and before you think that's a terrible way for a man to treat his wife, where is she? She's in the dungeon. Uh, That's actually not what he's conveying, is it? He's saying the wife of the satisfied believer is deep down inside the very soul of the house, bearing fruit, vines, symbols of of, uh, luxuriant blessing, and Uh, the fruit of joy. And and this is the picture. See how different that is from the picture today? The picture today is, what do you do, wife, outside of the house? That's what gives you value. No, Scripture says it's, it's what she does inside the house. She is a fruitful vine that casts her joy over the whole of the family. Isn't that true? Those of us who are husbands, we understand that. We're, we're, you may be the one that does the work, but you are not the one who makes things work in your home, are you? It's this luxuriant vine that if you've been blessed with a godly wife, uh, that's what she is. And uh, it's right there in the middle of the house. Isn't that the contrast between the family that tastes something of the Lord and, and ungodly families? You notice what happens in ungodly families. You've got to find this somewhere outside the house. And the difference in a godly family is it's actually there inside the house. Do you know, I think I've noticed increasingly how Uh, young Christians from strong Christian homes when they go off to university sometimes find great challenges. It's not the moral challenge of should I or shouldn't I. It's the horror of seeing the products of ungodly families where it's get out of the house that will be the location of satisfaction and not within the house. And then in the children too, this lovely picture, your sons will be like olive shoots around your table. Uh, one mustn't press metaphors, but olive trees apparently uh, take long to grow well and strong and then produce abundant fruit over the years. And it's a, it's a picture of the product of the marriage in the children and their usefulness and fruitfulness in the world. Uh, You know, in our church here, most of the parents, you know, the children are somewhere down there, and it's 24-7 chaos. I remember an occasion in our family after a family bereavement. uh, We have three boys and a girl, and I said to the boys who were some distance away, get the last flight home, and we'll have a meal together. And no wives or husband were there, just the six of us. And one of the boys insisted we sit round the table the way we sat round the table every single night. I, I couldn't remember where they sat, but he remembered where they sat. And we sat there, and I, uh, inwardly, of course, I was cracking up outwardly. I was the stoical father of the clan. But I thought, this is really. This is the fruit of Christ's grace, isn't it? And this is, this is what could be simpler than this, but you couldn't purchase this for all the money in the world. And that's what he's seeing. The context for satisfaction is, is here in the, in the marriage in the relationship with the wife and uh, one might say correspondingly with the husband. Um, and in the work and in the children. I wonder if it strikes you how significant this is in whole Bible terms because these are the very things that fell under a curse in the fall. Adam's daily work, Eve's calling to bear children, the relationship between them so that they started complaining to the Lord about one another and the awful catastrophe in their family life. When when they stepped away from the Lord, catastrophe came in all of these areas. And this is why one of the two words used for blessing in this psalm is the word that's characteristically used as antithetical to the language of cursing. Here, the one who has come to know the Lord, not yet perfectly, but begins to see the curse reversed and the blessing come to fruition. And that brings him thirdly at the end of the psalm to speak not only about the key to satisfaction and the context for satisfaction, but the continuation of satisfaction. May the Lord bless you from Zion all the days of your life may you see the prosperity of Jerusalem. And now he's heading into the future. And this is interesting, isn't it? Because uh, there is a satisfaction he has experienced in the Lord and in the Lord's blessings. It isn't that the Lord could be more satisfying, that he could be more satisfied in the Lord. And so, do you notice how the sphere widens? This is so interesting the expansion of this blessing of satisfaction, now looks forward to the whole of his life. May the Lord bless you from Zion all the days of your life. May you see the prosperity of Jerusalem. Now, he doesn't live in Zion. He doesn't live in Jerusalem. So, what's this got to do with him? Isn't this interesting? That the picture we've got here in this man's life, as he is no longer living in Zion, is that it will be the blessing of Zion, the prosperity of Jerusalem, that He will know in the little village from which He comes. Now, what is the picture there? The picture there is this. We come to the assembly of the Lord as individuals and families, but we don't leave the assembly of the Lord just as individuals and families. The family needs the blessing that comes from Zion to share in the prosperity that God gives to Jerusalem. Uh, what does that mean? Let me just give you a simple illustration. Uh, you are a Christian parent, a mom and a dad, and you have these two or three or nine or eleven uh, darling little children, two parents are not sufficient for the godly upbringing of any or all of their children. Say that again. Two parents are not sufficient for the godly upbringing of any or all of their children. It takes a church to do that. That's why the picture this man has is that he has been enfolded into the life of the church, and his family experience the blessing that comes from the life of the church. And many parents don't understand that. They believe that God has created us as isolated families with all the resources we need to bring up our children. Well, He hasn't created you as an isolated Christian who can do without the church. And He hasn't created you as an isolated parent who can rear your child for the Lord Jesus, apart from the church. Indeed, think about it this way. a nuclear family living in the same home. Is going to last for a couple of dozen years. Your nuclear family living in this world is going to last for 70 years. This family of the church is going to last for all eternity. And therefore, as a parent, your task is to fold your children into the church and see the church embrace those children and fold themselves into this family. And that's what he's saying. This is the benediction. May the Lord bless you from Zion all the days of your life. We want it to last through your life. We want you to see the blessing of the church, and we also want you to see the blessings of the future. May you live to see your children's children. So, shalom be upon all Israel. So, the curse that dogs our footsteps in personal relationships, in married life, in family life, in working life, in church life, somehow or another, the curse has been turned into blessing. When he went to Jerusalem, he would have caught a glimpse of how that happens, but just a glimpse those daily sacrifices in which the animal took the curse and the priest pronounced the blessing. But not yet what we see, that it was the Son of God who came to Himself be the sacrifice that would bear the curse in order that He might be the priest who would bring the benediction in our marriage, in our home and family, the places where we work, and in the assembly of God's people to which we belong, and raise his hands as he did on the very day of the resurrection, and uttered his first words to his community-gathered disciples, Shalom satisfaction wholeness curse removed blessing come be yours so in work are you are your eyes in the right direction on the lord in your married life christ at the center in your family life shalom Perhaps you need to be brought back there and your family needs to be brought back there. Perhaps this man's family needed to be brought back there. But perhaps you've never been there. You can't get no satisfaction. Then you need to come, don't you, to Christ for shalom and satisfaction. Our Heavenly Father, We thank you for the riches of your Word, these simple words that are so full of your promise of blessing. We pray for ourselves. We pray for our husbands and wives. We pray for our children and our families. We pray for the work that we do day by day, and we pray that we may be restored fully to the satisfaction that is found in Jesus Christ and that where there has been dissatisfaction in marriage or work or home and family, relationships between parents and children and children and parents. We remember how these were the first things Satan attacked. And we pray that you would bring restoring and transforming grace wherever that has been so. thank you for your love for us. We pray that we may relish it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this sermon from St. Peter's Free Church in Dundee. If you found this sermon has been helpful to you, please help us to continue building up and assisting the people of God. Visit our website at stpeters-dundee.org.uk For information and training on persuasive evangelism and how to share your faith biblically, please visit the website of SOLAS, the Centre for Public Christianity, at solas-cpc.org. Once again, that website address is solas C-P-C. .org Thanks for listening.